Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This episode of the Mode Push Podcast, the Dutch Grand Prix, the Orange Army is going to be out in full force at Zambort this weekend. Plus, Dan dives into some details on the porpoising that these teams have had to deal with and the newest technical directives. And will an American be driving an F1 seat anytime soon? That's all now on Mode Push. Radio check. Loud and clear. KSL Sports and KSL Podcast present Mode Push, an American view of F1, starting now. And stop. He's with you, Dutch. With his Honestly. I've guessed it. I've absolutely guessed it. I enjoy this so much. Thank you. Thank you. everybody welcome on into another edition of mode push podcast we've just fired up for all you newly acquired american f1 fans like myself somebody over just over the last chunk of years maybe i had somebody reach out on twitter and say i guess it's like i'm like everybody else i'm assuming i just you got me on uh, on drive to survive and here i am and uh that certainly is the case for me i'm alex keery one of your hosts dan jimenez lifelong f1 fan so you've got some That's right I, look, I'm just the guy who tags along. I ask I, I, when I was when I got into high school, I started wrestling like late, and so I didn't know any of the rules. But I got way into it, and I was like, "This is awesome!" And all my uncles were good wrestlers and stuff. But I never paid attention until I really had to start getting into it. So it feels like this for me with F1, where I go, "I love this," and I just don't know enough about it. Like, why is that? I still ask questions, and so uh, you've turned into the guy that I can bounce all those questions off of, Dan. So I appreciate it, man. Uh-huh. I'm happy to to play that role. I love to see new fans. And like you, you know, in the past week since we launched our first episode, just people coming out of the woodwork saying, I love F1, but I don't know anything about it. I just got hooked on because of Netflix. And I'm like, hey, this is this is the podcast for you then. And I'm always happy to talk racing because it could be intimidating. You hear these terms and and uh, and references to things that you just don't know. And it's the more you can learn about the sport, the more the more you enjoy it while you watch it, for sure. Historically... I mean, they've done a lot to improve, like, the TV product. And I think when I was a kid, the only thing that existed were the races. It was almost like the qualifying. They're like, hey, by the way, yesterday, the stuff that yeah. we ended up getting, I think, on American television, maybe qualifying was on there. But now, I mean, and I'm, like, subscribed to F1 TV and everything. And so I am I can, if I want, I can watch FP1. I can watch FP2. I can watch the race. Uh, you know, the 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 I can watch the, the technical directors do all their uh, – all the, the team principals getting together for their like weekly interview or whatever. I can get those guys, but I don't consume all that. Mm-hmm. Unlike the football side of things, I'll watch every dang interview. Uh, I'll break things down pregame wise and all that. But on like a normal weekend, it, it, from an, from like a person who's consuming it, do you think that? I mean, it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday deal. It's a whole friggin' weekend. It, it can it, be a commitment, yeah, if you really want to get into it for so sure. So how much do you consume? Do you do all of it, or do you just get glimpses of it? How do you do it? I uh, I watch the FP1, basically all the free practice highlights. Formula One does a great job of doing, like, five-minute 
summaries of every free practice to see, okay, who went off track, who was fast. Like, you know, you just can catch up really quick and, you know, you can pop open the app and get caught up in five minutes at the end of the workday. When did Latifi go into the gravel? Just show me that. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. And then on Saturday, uh, if, if it's a normal Saturday, I'll watch qualifying right after it finishes with uh, the DVR. And then I'll watch like the last three or four minutes of Q1 and Q2. Right. Because I like the drama of see who's going to hit, you know, who's going to make Show the Show me those off. last few minutes yeah. of, those, of those sessions. When everybody goes on their flying laps. Sure. And then I'll watch all of Q3. The addition of this last year of these uh – Oh, what are they? It's just the, they're the they're the sprint races. Yeah, which is interesting because they do this at other levels. Do you think that's added to the sport? I mean, I it's more points. I mean, I guess in the end you're kind of like, hey, cool, top eight, get a get a point apiece for, or they get they get some points, you know, kind of going down. But and, and then that determines the qualifying order. But it also at the same time, I'm like, so this is a third of the length. It's a race, but it's not a race. There's some points involved, but not that many. Is it just like desperation to get more eyeballs eyeballs on some of these tracks or or has it added to the to the product i guess as as more people are getting into it yeah that's that's kind of an open question. I think that uh it certainly is exciting because it's so short, but does it really add in the end i I think that they my estimate is that they'll go away from it and just stick with the normal qualifying, but we'll see obviously the the drivers. If you if you don't normally not a, a great qualifier but a good racer you want to do the sprint race because you want to you know if you're Sebastian Vettel or Alonso and you're a wily old veteran that can pick up five spots you know in the first three laps it's great for you uh, but if you're Lewis or Max or or Charles you don't want to risk you'd rather just hey give me my one flying lap and qualifying and uh, don't make me go out there and you know risk our equipment for well for and, nothing. and that's the part too where you go it is I mean there's race pace there. And so you kind of go, the last thing you want is for somebody to go into a wall during the sprint race or yeah. I don't even like the idea of somebody pulling within a couple of points on the, on a championship on a sprint race versus like an actual race, you know? And and so I do like the idea of making it uh, an exciting way to get into qualifying, but qualifying is, or, or to get into, to get to the starting grid, but qualifying is exciting by its nature. Yeah, I think they, I think they struggled a little bit from the time. I mean, there were a couple times in 2020 that, you know, they didn't even, you know, they're backed up in traffic, and they, I think that it was at Monza. I think maybe a couple of years yeah. ago where they didn't even get everyone, to start. No yeah. one started. That everyone part. waited too it was long. Like, ah, whatever. So then no one gets to do that last flying lap, and you have this weird grid, which is also interesting too in its own way. So uh, from a, from a a standing standpoint, because I'm a big uh, let's look at the the playoff standings. Like you know, that's how mm-hmm. I do them all my other sports. From the constructors, uh, from the constructor title race, you've got Red Bull far and away out in front, almost to 500 points, 475 to Ferrari's 357. Uh, Mercedes has 316, which you know they are there. They've just been kind of hanging out in the background a little bit, and then it's just a massive drop off. And this is where those midfield teams, Renault, uh, McLaren, Alfa Romeo, uh, Haas, you know, scoring some points again this year, but. You're seeing you're seeing these just this massive drop off off of or out of those top three, and I guess that's why we talk about middle you know these middle teams and, but I mean like the the the, the difference this is the part for me that is sometimes hard Dan is like, it, there there has to be parity in American sports for people to be that excited about it, so you can't just have a top two top three team only and there's just a massive drop off you've got to have some sort of a 
you know, if the seven seed took on the two seed in the playoffs, like I want it to be kind of close. I like that those guys are yeah. are relatively close. And and this is the part where I think F one could do better. You go, how do we get it to where it's not just a Red Bull Ferrari Mercedes race in some particular one, some version of that order every year? Yeah, and that's going to be the goal with the cost caps and all the changes going forward is to level that playing field to take the budget, you know, out of uh, the equation as much as possible because. In racing, speed is proportional to money. The more money you got, the faster you're going to go. And uh, so the cost caps and, and all the reg changes that happen this year and, and going into future years, that's going to be the goal is to even the playing field. So that on any given Sunday, anybody from either any of these teams is, you know has a chance to get a podium or a win. Uh, from the rate, from the, the actual driver's championship, Max Verstappen way out in front on that one as well at 284 points. Uh Checo Perez got himself in the – have it to be a 1-2 for Red Bull in that race. 191 points there ahead of Charles Leclerc, who's got 186 points. Uh, Carlos Sainz in fourth at 171. They're relatively close. And then you've got George Russell just a point behind Carlos Sainz. The consistency from uh, George Russell this year I think has been forgotten a lot because anytime you're fifth in the driver's standings I get, and you're in a Mercedes – People aren't going to be that excited for you, but I think he's had a tremendous first year in a, in a Merck seat. Yeah, it's definitely been impressive. Lewis has been kind of all over the place, and it seemed like at Spa he was shot out of a cannon, was really hoping for a good finish. And then, of course, Alonzo had you know something to do about that. But George has been really impressive. Uh, I think that you can't look at George and say that that fifth position is, is his fault. You know, it's Mercedes as a whole that's got to get their act together. And when they do... I think George is going to be as competitive as Lewis. It's going to be a, a tight fight. Maybe it's going to feel like the uh, Nico Rosberg days. Oh, wouldn't that be nice uh, for the rest of us, right? Yeah. I like the awkwardness. I, it, that's one of the dynamics that I've also come to just kind of see what that relationship is like between inside a team, the two drivers. And I think I was introduced to it in that first year of Drive to Survive where it's it's uh, that Red Bull, and, uh, Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen kind yeah. of weird thing that they I think probably made more of a dramatic situation there they're they're much closer friends I think than we than we kind of knew the, now imagine drive to survive with Nico Rosberg and uh and Lewis Hamilton in that epic. 2016 season that would have been amazing epic but uh instead I got into this thing going so they're on a team or not like that that's the part where I think most people too they go okay so they're on the same team but at some point like there have been even even just two or three races ago where Sergio Perez is like, I don't think this is fair, man. You gotta let me have a shot at this title, dude. And inside these teams, and certainly Carlos Sainz has had his moments too on Team Radio, being like, I don't like the decision, you know, on I let me race this guy or get him out of my way. And so the dynamic of the individual versus the team thing, I've come to find out that the driver standings are kind of the thing that is the most important. Yeah. Even though hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars are on the line, depending on the order that you finish as a constructor. Yeah, this is, it's a very unique uh, element to F1 versus other forms of racing. You know, where I came from in NASCAR, there's, you know, you, you could have up to four different drivers on a single team, but they're all four independent teams. Right. And there's a sense of what is the word is kind of coopetition, cooperation and competition happening between these teams where you, you share some data, you don't share all your data, you know, but it's so there's that healthy level of competition in between the team, but there's no team orders. So it's that's just, more of like a that's more like a Red Bull AlphaTauri kind of a correct relationship, more kind of like that. Where in in uh, in F1, obviously each team has two drivers, two cars, 
and you know comes down to the the driver in the seat at the end. People are talking about this how Max has got same car as, as Sergio Perez, but some last weekend for some reason like he found just something else. But they have to have the same cars, right? Or do they do what what setups are they allowed to do and not do? And because they're like, no, these are the same exact freaking cars, same power unit for sure, for sure. But like, it's not just that; it's the setup of like the rake and and the aero stuff. So, what can you change from driver to driver within a team? Oh, so much, and it will really come down to a driver's preference around how they like their car to act on the racetrack. Do they like it? to oversteer or to be a little loose and just pivot through the corner really easily? Or do they like to have it, you know, tight or understeer? All of that is going to determine how uh, the front, you know, all the aerodynamic bits that they put on the car on the front and the back, uh, how they set up the suspension. All of that is going to be unique to each driver. And so you can't really then say, hey, Checo, you need to drive this lap exactly like Max. This is where his breaking point is. This is where he picks up the throttle. Because he might have a, a different setup than Max, and they may say, "Okay, we're going to put Max's setup in your car." And Checo goes out there, and he's you know doesn't like it. So th- there is definitely personal driver preference to the dynamics of the car that they're trying to get the most out of the driver and the car. So you know, like you said, engine, all the other kind of factory parts that are coming into these cars are the same, but they're when you when you come to the setup of the car, uh, it's it's going to vary driver to driver, even within the same team. Storylines going into the Dutch Grand Prix this weekend. You've got uh, this racetrack, Zandvoort, where they just went back last year after a, a time off there. And they're still trying to kind of dial in this racetrack for numerous reasons, right? Trying to figure out how to make this thing more interesting for television, how to make it more safe for these guys. The The, the technical directive that came down during the summer, I think this will be interesting, too, because it was like, oh, we started to find out that is like Red Bull really paid attention to school and did their homework over the break. And even though Mercedes made all these complaints about things that needed to change, that technical directive that came down without, I guess, I guess we can nerd out a little bit because I'm interested about how, how this thing works and why the porpoising even like got to the point that it was so bad and, and how they're trying to fix it because obviously they don't want to keep going forward with these. It's not fun to watch on TV. They go, oh boy, they're at the end of that straight and you see that Ferrari car just go, rub, 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 and the Mercedes is like basically jumping, you know? Yeah. So uh, from that standpoint, I'm glad they're kind of fixing things. What did get fixed, if anything? And how are, it seems like some teams are still ahead of the game when it comes to developing that. Red Bull never seemed like they had that big of a problem with the porpoising. Yeah. So the porpoising, if you're new to F1, you're just like, what is this word all about? Why are these cars bouncing around? And why is it new to 2022? Well, for this year, there were a lot of changes made to the cars in order to help the for tighter racing, to be able to allow the car behind to follow a lot closer. Because over the years, with the way these cars have been developed and changed, you get a lot of dirty air coming off the back of the car, a lot of turbulent air from big wings and all everything else that they've put on the car to create downforce. But then that means there's that kind of pocket of dirty air that the person in second can't hang behind, and so you get these big gaps. So they want to address that tighter racing, so they change a lot of the elements to the car so that there's cleaner air coming off the back to allow that that second car to pull up. Sure. And Closer the way, racing yeah, supposed to be better, obviously. And the way they do that to still keep the downforce is through something called ground effects, which is basically creating a suction cup on the underside of the car, or basically getting it as low as possible to create that negative pressure and suck the car to the ground. So... With 2022 in in this new change and trying to get the car as low as possible, what's happening is 
on these straights, when the speed really, the airspeed really picks up, you start getting um, negative and positive pressure. It starts stalling out, almost like a like a wing on a plane yeah. stalls out when mm-hmm. you get going too slow. And then it just creates this oscillating effect, and you go up and down, up and down because this pressure is changing underneath the car. Now, how do you avoid that? Well, you got to run your car higher. And in, pr- in previous years, they had what was called rake. Like you had this, like your nose down angle on sure. the car. And if you remember Red Bull from last year versus Mercedes, Murray's, Mercedes looked very flat, and the Red Bull was always like nose down, tail up. Sure. So this year, in order to get that ground effect, everyone's having to run the car level. But Red Bull, it seems this year, has been able to run their car a bit higher than Ferrari and Mercedes. And you can do that. And, 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 and you can do that, yeah. It's, it's, it's never really um, advantageous to go higher, right? It's always advantageous to try to get as low as possible. So within the regulations, they could go higher but still create the downforce that they need through other elements around the car. Okay. And where Ferrari and, and Mercedes were bought all in on this on getting the car as low and flat as possible – and they have just suffered from the porpoising. So they, I, we've seen them uh, try to drill holes in the bottom. We've seen them try to do all sorts of weird yeah. things in the name of some driver safety. I mean, I, I think we saw wh- whatever race it was, maybe toward the beginning of the season, maybe it was like race four or five. Like Lewis gets out of the car and is like limping over to the to – the, In Baku, yeah. He came Baku, out yeah, and everyone's he, worrying about his spine. Like, and dude, his, yeah, he's like brain. walking like I do when I get out of my car just on a regular commute. So I'm like, dude, what's going on with, uh, with, with this whole thing? And I know that they've been saying in the name of driver safety – but it's also a little bit of a mix of they don't have their crap together. That's kind of yeah. why they're 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 uh, they're bickering about it. I yeah, guess. and so how they determine how low you can go is with this basically plank that it runs down the uh, middle or the center of the underside of the car, and how much that wears during the race determines if you're you know legal or not. Well, Mercedes found out after they did some poking around that Red Bull had found a loophole, and racing is all about finding loopholes in the rule book. And so I, I, I think. It, I think of Williams, yeah, and the active suspension that they came up mm-hmm. with years ago that gave them basically a second on a lap, and yeah. it took forever for everybody else to. Now we have a lot of innovations that have come from F one that go to the regular car world, mm-hmm. but that's what we're talking about is is that you have this set of regulations, you have a way that every team's going to interpret it, and if you have a a lead engineer who cracks that code, which is essentially in some small way what Red Bull did yeah. then versus all these guys. Because I didn't know some of these guys early on in some of these other teams. That was why Williams was so good for a stretch in the in the, uh, in the the 80s was they had figured some stuff out that other teams had not, the active uh, the active uh, braking and, and, and things like that, that, that just we take for granted now because they're part of our cars. Right. That, like, that came about because F1 cars came up with that technology to try to win races yeah. and it would be a faster car, which is interesting to me. But anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. So hat tip to Red Bull because they were able to see, okay, there's a loophole loophole here in the regulations. We can mount this plank such that it can uh, flex a bunch. And w- whether it's flexing from the arrow or something else secret that they're doing, it's flexing. So they're able to run the car in a different manner and not, you know, trip that, that wear limit that they're on. So then Mercedes knocks on the FIA's door and says, hey, Red Bull's doing something that's kind of not in the spirit of the regulations. You guys need to crack down on it because we've been doing it by the book the, the whole year, expecting that the FIA would say, okay, great. Yeah, We're we'll, investigate we'll, it. we'll slap Red Bull on the hand. Um, and Or I, what they're really hoping for is saying, okay, yeah, you can do it like Red Bull too. But the FIA came back and said, no, actually, we're going to – Stick with the one method that you've been doing. So now Red Bull kind of has to regress to 
doing it a bit more like uh, uh, Ferrari and, and Mercedes have done, and Mercedes didn't gain any advantage by going to report it to the FIA. They kind of got stuck with their same problems, which hmm. is when they show up to Spa, they're still porpoising. Which leads to this weekend, the Dutch Grand Prix and Max Verstappen. If you thought it was going to be a wild weekend uh, with his fans in uh, last weekend in Belgium, then you're, it's going to be more insane even this week. The uh, Orange Army is going to be out. Everybody's super pumped because now Max isn't just like in the fight this year. He's in the driver's seat and he looks like he's going to walk away with the second world championship at this point. And I don't know. I mean, there's a different level of uh, of fandom that comes out of out of uh, out of the Netherlands. So I'm I'm interested. But but Red Bull is dominating. It's his home track. Uh, and I you know I just don't see him not winning this thing unless there's some kind of a you know lap one type of an incident like we saw last week uh, a little further back or mechanical failure. We've seen that we've seen the, the DNFs from some of these guys throughout the season. But Red Bull's. Uh, you know, consistency on the mechanical side of things. I mean, they, they just, knock on wood, they just haven't seen they they haven't had those issues since I think the very early on set part of the season. Yeah, they've had a reliable car. And going into the weekend, Christian Horner was hedging a little bit by talking about the tire degradation stuff that they saw from Spa, with you know just saying that there's a bit of concern for for the Dutch Grand Prix around how they'll hold up on tire wear versus these other... Is it more downforce a more, more downforce setup at, uh, at Zandvoort than, than it is at other racetracks, or how does it compare to others? It's it's about average. Uh, it's about average, but it's it's going to be hot, and then the, the banking is really what's different about Zandvoort. In the remodel that they've done in the preparation for F1 to come back last year, they added banking to uh, some of the turns, and you know, by F1 standards, this is really high banking if you look at nascar it's average or even right. lower than lower. average but, but they have the same kind of big banking corners at, at monza as well next week i mean they've got places on that at, yeah that are that i think most people again you see it on tv you don't appreciate how much it does actually bank and these cars are not it's just not something that they do most of the year yeah yeah it's fun to see uh some of the different team social medias uh at least today seen you know, McLaren got Danny Rick out there at the very top of the last corner on the 18 degree banking and was having him roll those Stroop waffle uh, oh, yeah. like little desserts <laughs> down, and they're rolling like a wheel down the uh, the grating. It was pretty funny, <laughs> but yeah. So what that does is it it adds this element of vertical force to the car, vertical acceleration, almost like a fighter pilot that's doing a big loop in that that big positive G that's kind of coming into the car. Mm-hmm. When you go through that banking, that's what's happening. It loads up the tire when you load up the tire. It's going to heat up more. It's going to wear more. And so that's uh, what Red Bull is saying, that they're concerned about going into the week, but they might just be bluffing. Which is what I love, by the way. If there's a guy who pulls it off every week and just lies through his teeth, it's Christian Horner. Yes. And for some reason, like, we're, we're like it's fine. He makes everybody else out to be the bad guy, and uh, and he's like, look, we're just going by the technical regula- regulations here. <laughs> uh, so interesting news out of F1 this week. Audi gets into F1. Uh, they're going to be a power unit provider, it looks like, after 2026. Is that like a big deal? Does it matter? Is that because F1 is gaining so much more traction and it's a branding thing? Is is there ever going to be an American presence in this in this sport again? I think about the Andretti, uh, you know, name that was floated out there for so for so long, and obviously Gene Haas and his team is is like you know that's exciting, but it's not very fun to be at the very bottom of the of the uh, you know the standings and have that American team there, and he doesn't like that, but where's the future of this thing with teams like Audi getting added or are there going to be other teams that are added to this thing? Is, is the grid ever going to grow to 
22, 24 uh, cars on the track? That's a good question. I I would certainly hope that we could get an American presence, or a, ma- a manufacturer, an owner, and a driver. I mean, it's it's just smart business with the way that the popularity of the sport's growing in the United States. You'd think that Ford, Chevy, somebody's going to want right. to you know, get into it. It was weird because Honda got out yeah. at a time that we thought, Oh, you guys are like climbing here. This is like maybe the top of what you guys have been. And then Honda goes, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're never doing this again after after next year. And you go, wait, what? I thought you guys I you guys love this thing. And I maybe it's because some of these companies are going in such a different direction when it comes to development. They're getting into the electric car thing. Uh, Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, by the way, they're like all in on the electric stuff. But yeah. I don't know what, what direction it's going to be for the sport. I mean, there's obviously Formula E that's not nearly as interesting to watch. It's actually really hard to listen to. Yeah. And uh, But I, I don't know what the future looks like when it comes to them trying to be, like, carbon neutral, uh, get into an era where they're, where they're using – you know, I, I know they're trying to at least tell you that they're, that they're getting into a different – or how they're going to propel these cars in the future. I don't know. But yeah. I like Audi getting in. I just don't know what it's going to mean like going forward for the sport. Yeah, they referenced that as a big reason you know, from a branding PR perspective. They said, oh, well, you know, we're finally ready to come into F1 because F1 is going green. Uh, if that's, a, you know, that's probably some of the truth, but I think a lot of it is that they're seeing the popularity of the sport More grow. eyeballs than ever, yeah. Yeah, but in 2026, there's a lot of changes coming to the engine. To uh, be, you know, more sustainable, you know, synthetic fuels, uh, carbon neutral, all of that. And Audi, that aligns with their, you know, corporate vision of, I think, by 2033, having their entire fleet electrified. So if that's the direction they're going as a brand, then it makes sense uh, to jump in at that point. And as power plant only, they can more or less kind of start to dip their toe in the water. And there's speculation that they would have their first uh, technical relationship with uh, Sauber. So maybe they'd, they'd be replacing uh, Alfa Romeo over there. But be uh, it's going to be interesting. I think it's a good thing. Get get more eyeballs on the sport and uh, more fans. I would love for them to have a car. I mean, because Audi is so good at design, and they just have that. And, and they they certainly have race blood, you know, race bones to be able to uh, get, get into this thing. But uh, I've always been interested to see, like, how can we – look, when you have the races coming to Miami, to Las Vegas, already in Texas, obviously, the American – side of things we think about it like this with other american sports franchises unless the sport's ready to expand you're not going to get these you know what we have these these expansion franchises right that have uh that have come and gone in, in in these different sports and and then ultimately it has to be up to the sport to say can we support that market and the answer is absolutely and there's definitely billions of dollars here to be had uh to to get that kind of a thing going and to buy into F1, what that cost is, it's actually not a lot compared to what you see with some of these other bigger sports. You see people spending, I mean, the Cowboys are worth almost uh, $9 billion now, really more likely closer to 10 Same thing with, like, the Yankees and, and Manchester United or some of these other teams over across. But, I mean, like, uh, from that standpoint, F1 is as rich in money and richness as any other sport in the world. And so I would imagine that expanding the the sport bigger than it's ever been should be of massive interest to Liberty, who runs all the media side of things, and then also to the guy, to the FIA. Uh, but it's also a weird time to be, like, expanding your your fleet of uh, of, of combustion engine cars, you know, going across the world. Right. And I I have to think that there's room uh, for, for more. 22, 24 in a field I d- certainly think is sustainable and – I would love to see it, especially if it means increased competition. 
Uh, what's this race weekend look like? Is this a setup? Is this a race? Is this a racetrack setup that's uh, going to be preferential to one team versus another? Are we going to see basically a Red Bull Ferrari fight with maybe some Mercs kind of like right behind them? Or is it? I mean, which is pretty much same old, same old what we've seen all year. Uh, what are we expecting? I, I didn't see the weather was going to change at all this weekend over there, but uh, what can we anticipate from Zambord, I guess? It's going to be interesting. You know, last year, Zandvoort, uh, there was a lot of anticipation and excitement around it. And then when the race got going itself, it was uh, not a lot of overtaking. It was a little bit drier than I think what uh, everyone is hoping for. So there are some changes that they have lined up that they're going to try out. In in the first uh, free practice, uh, they're going to uh, take the DRS zone that starts at the beginning of the pit straight and back it up to before the final corner. What does that do? That uh, lets the drivers get on the DRS sooner so that by the time they get to the end of that pit straight going into turn one, that speed differential between them and the car in front of them is is great enough for them to be able to finish the pass. Now, the downside is that would increase the speed and the load through that final corner that has that 18-degree banking. And so Pirelli's a little concerned uh, to see what the tires are going to do in that corner with the with the DRS open. Another thing that DRS does is um, when you hit, when the driver hits that button and that flap opens on the back, the aero balance on the car changes, so that shifts more weight onto the front tires and weight off of the back tires when you open your DRS. And with more weight on the tires, that's even worse for for sure. tire wear. Yeah, yeah. So Pirelli's going to look at it uh, after FP1, and I hope that they stick with it because I think it'd make for great racing. And those cars are going to be cooking when they get down to turn one. They're going to be going really fast if they can open their DRS sooner. And then, um, you know, that will then play into the tire strategy. They're bringing the three hardest tires of the the tire set from Pirelli. And uh, before this DRS change, it sounds like everybody was thinking this is a one-stop race. Start on your mediums, change to your hards, finish on your hards. Well, this probably brings into uh, play the, the mediums. And it's a two-stop race now. And if we do that, then there's obviously more opportunity for things to happen, strategy, and and for uh, you know some some interesting fireworks potentially in the race. So like uh, with the with the two stops, two sets of mediums and finish on a soft, or how? Or, uh, what are we what are we talking about here? Just all three sets of mediums that people are going to be using. What's the strategy? Yeah. So the about? rule is that you have to use at least two, two types. Right. Yeah. During a race. So yeah, it'll be, you know maybe you start on a soft. And then lap ten or something, you're coming in on mediums, and then you're uh, in your third stint, and you're on mediums still. Well, I guess it, you start on the softs, and then what? You kind of give away the fact that you're going to be ready at any point to get that undercut going, right? Yeah, yep, that's right. So it, it'll be interesting. I think there'll be some dynamics, and then you've got Red Bull saying that they're worried about tire deg, and so uh, maybe they start on uh, the mediums and then go to the hards, and 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 you know we'll see. Uh, so this weekend. Dutch Grand Prix, we're excited about it. On the off-track stuff, uh, what is going on with the Oscar Piastri contract? I know that the that, that contract review board got together, and as of this afternoon, we hadn't seen anything, any decisions. Do you think we're going to have a decision in the race weekend, or do you think it's going to be pushed until after the race, and then we'll we'll maybe be talking about it going into Monza? Or, I mean, in the end, it's kind of a bad deal because he signed a contract, and it looks like he's just going to go, nah, no thanks. Yeah, it does feel like the longer they go without a decision, it seems that that increases the chances that they're going to let him out of his contract. I don't know. I th- I think that they're trying to work through that, and 
I suspect its decision doesn't come until after the race. Uh, it would really take over the you know the entire media attention during during the weekend. Maybe that's what F1 wants. But uh, we'll see. I think that if they do let him out of his contract, I mean, e- either way, there's going to be a domino effect that then falls through so many of these other teams. If he if he gets out of his contract and goes to McLaren, then there's a lot of speculation right now about Gas Gasly leaving Alpha Tauri and going to Alpine and uh, having that dual French driver combo for Alpine, which would be a dream for them. And then that opens a spot uh, at Alpha Tauri. And my favorite, you know, uh, pet prediction for this one would be Colton Herta, the American driver from IndyCar. Uh, that would be uh, really awesome to have uh, an American in F1, and I'm sure F1 would want that too for ratings. Uh, I watched him a little bit in the IndyCar uh, series, and uh, talented, talented kid. I mean, he's uh, he's interesting to watch. I haven't gotten into the IndyCar as much as I thought I would either. I thought, okay, well, now I'm going to definitely start watching IndyCar. There are elements to it that I appreciate where I'm like, everybody's on the same equipment. Mm-hmm. And that is that that to me is interesting. I like the idea. That's one thing that F1, I know some people love, and maybe you with the mechanical engineering background, you go, hey, look, these guys crack the code on, this, on these regulations, and so they win because their engineers figured it out. But then there's also the part where I'm like, yeah, but I want these guys to be on the same equipment. That's the only part of IndyCar that I go, oh, that's interesting to me. But – I don't know. I've watched a few races and I haven't been able to get into yeah. it as much. I, I, I'm similar. I watch the Indy 500 every year. It's always a competitive race. It's, sure. it's great to see other drivers come in, like you know Alonso ran it, uh, Juan Pablo Montoya's run it a bunch. Right. So you see a lot of F1 drivers come over and run Fernando the Indy 500. Fernando Alonso. I mean, my yeah, hands, yeah, yeah. So um, plus the speed on that thing is unmatched. I mean, to qualify and you get to the top 30 and you're like, oh. 231 miles an hour on the average on those average three laps and they didn't get in yeah. and you're going and those, wow those guys are on a knife edge going into those corners it's it is really impressive but yeah Seton you know Colton Herta he's a young driver son of uh you know a, a really uh you know uh popular driver from the 80s and 90s in IndyCar and uh the challenge with him is going to be if he has enough uh what are called the super license points right uh so he gets you know points from being an IndyCar and based on his finishes uh, in each of the last three seasons, he gets X number of points, and and he also gets points for towards super license if he drives in a practice session or a te- an F one test session. Sure. So right now, as it stands, he's short, pretty far off. So. Um, he would basically need to get a seat for the you know almost rest of the year and run all the free practices to be able to get enough points to to make it. So they're like doing a special review right now to see if they can just say, all right, you're close enough. Here's a super license. Ah. Which, if you're, you know, uh, coming up through FP uh, or, you know, um, F2, F3, right. you're like, wait a second. The <laughs> American kid who's a good business decision for F1 gets the free, you know, right. nod, but the rest of us are still held to this standard. Like, that, our that'll butts, be rough. Living in dorms in Magello, like trying to, like, <laughs> yeah. eat ramen every night. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. I, I would love to see an American driver in and, uh, I wonder if we would treat it the same way that all these other countries do with their drivers, right? Where you just go, yeah, but I want the American guy to win. When you see how insane these fans are for the guys from that, when they have that flag on their on that on that fire suit, and you go, yeah, man, people are gonna people would be way on board with it. It would be pretty interesting to see. I think so, and just the uh, dream of having an American on the podium and having you know the Star Spangled Banner playing at the oh, end of a race. Man. 
I mean, that would take us all to tears, you know. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of uh, U.S. fans would get behind him pretty quick. Okay. Uh, we're going to be back for our uh, review of the race. We'll have a race recap uh, when we get together Sunday evenings and this thing, will, and then it'll drop again uh, on Monday for you. But uh, we're having fun so far. So we'll be back with episode four of uh, of our program. And, uh, Dan, we're, we're further into this thing. We went further than we mo- we went longer than we, than we do most of the time. But a lot to talk about. We still have way we still have way more we could have probably gotten into. All right, so uh, we'll be back at it again. I'll see you on Sunday. Okay, right on. Don't yep. spoil the race for me either. Don't send I me a text. text. Don't no do memes. any of that stuff. Yeah. No. Save the memes for after. <laughs> Save the memes for after. All right, for Dan Jimenez, Alex Keery, this is the Mode Push Podcast, KSL Podcast, and KSL Sports.